If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament as we continue our journey. Uh, maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, this is a real upbeat service uh, so far. <laughs> Enjoying that. Um, but you know what? There's a lot of us who come here with some baggage, come here with some heaviness. And isn't it great to know that our God entered, enters in with us to this? Uh, and it gives us, loves us so much, he allows us to wrestle with some of the things that Naomi's wrestling with, some of the amazing questions. Did you hear what she's saying about God? Seems kind of scandalous, doesn't it? I mean, when God's people uh, say the things that they're saying in this chapter about a God who, who takes all the junk and, and allows it to come in their life, and Naomi has the, the gall to put it at God's feet, can we do that? What do we do with our junk? I mean, what do we do with our garbage? What do we do with our brokenness? Do we, do we gather here and say, hey, let's pretend. Woohoo! Everything's good. Do we got to fake it till we make it? Or do we got to clean up God, say, oh, God's good. You know, I don't know what's happening. Let's try to clean him up. Naomi didn't do any of that. She just let her broken life point to a God who she said is in control. When I say, and the Bible says, is loving. So how do we make it all work? Man, does God want to speak today? And I don't know why he's chosen a broken sinner who's nervous as craziness to speak, but that's the way he works. So I need prayer. So let's pray. Will you join me in prayer, please? Father God, as, as Vicki sang that haunting song with the amazing gifts you, you've given her, a song that pointed to someone that you loved, someone that was your friend, someone named Job, someone whose, whose life I don't want, <laughs> and someone whose circumstances were just horrible and seemingly defined him. But, but God, it's, it's the beauty of, of that book of Job that, that around the 17th chapter that he says something that's absolutely inexplicable. That, that Job, in the, in the midst of all the junk in life, somewhere finds this hope and, and finds this reality to hang on to. That, that Job will say, in the midst of the storm, he says, I, I know... I, I know that my Redeemer lives. And God, it was, it was that hope. It was that knowledge. It was that faith that led him to shore. God, I, I pray for each one of us here. I, I don't know their stories. I know some. I, I don't know the condition we showed up this morning. But God, here's, here's my prayer. That there wouldn't be one person here this morning that doesn't leave here not being able to say, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and knows that that Redeemer's name is Jesus. So God, would you come and would you speak to us? Would you speak louder than our circumstances? Would you speak louder than our garbage? Would you speak louder than our sinfulness? Would you speak louder than our broken hearts? Would you, would you speak louder than our unbelief? So that we can join Job and miraculously say, 
our Redeemer, lives. And because of that, we can face tomorrow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This Christmas holiday, in between Christmas and New Year's, uh, our family listened to a book, an absolutely amazing book, uh, a book that spellbinded our entire family as we travel together. Uh, every time we were in the car, like, we got to put that book on. We got we to hear more of that incredible story. The book is entitled Unbroken. And the incredible story is the life, true life story of a man named Louis Zamperini. I mean, as this amazing life story mazes through some of the most unbelievable circumstances that you could ever believe, there were several times that, that we wanted to say collective, collectively, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, I ain't making this stuff up. I think this is really this guy's life story. Can someone really live this life? I mean, it's, I'm telling you, amazing read. Amazing story. Well, Zamperini's life experiences chiseled out a number one New York Times bestseller. It's that good of a story. I mean, it's a, it's a mischievous little boy growing up in California, uh, a kid who's always in trouble, a kid who's stealing and lying and, and not a very nice boy, who happens to have a gift, and his gift, man, I tell you, that boy could run. Maybe being the first one they thought to break the four-minute mile. So this mischievous boy becomes a world-class athlete at Stanford, and, and he becomes an Olympian. He goes to the 1936 Olympics and and supposedly shakes hands with Adolf Hitler. The rumors about this boy and how good he was, because he's only a teenager at the time, they're saying, this is it. This is the real deal. He he has the chance to be the first one to to break that elusive four-minute mile. And he set his hopes that 1940 would become the Olympics, that he becomes not just a runner in the Olympics, but he becomes a Olympic champion, a gold medalist. But if you know history, you know the 40 Olympics didn't happen. Little thing going on in the world called World War II. And Louis Zamperini had a new title, and it was Bombardier. Bombardier in a B-24 uh, airplane bomber. Uh, first one assigned to him was called Superman. And then uh, through a twist of events, uh, through circumstances, through that maze of his life that keeps Going in amazing turns, he and his crew board a B-24 called the Green Hornet. The Green Hornet never flew right. They said the Green Hornet, it just kind of had like one of those bad omens, if there's such a thing, over that plane. And they actually went out, not, not to go bomb anybody, they actually went out to go and find other plane, a plane that had recently disappeared. And the Green Hornet disappeared too. Disappeared into the Pacific And amazingly, as he knew he was about to crash and as that B-24 entered the Pacific waters, uh, Louis Zamperini was all of a sudden bound by the wiring and the machinery of that plane. And his life was ebbing away as he was finding his way, now flying to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He never knew how. He never really could explain it. But all of a sudden, all that was entrapping him, all that was entangling him, released And his vest filled up and he made his way to the surface where two other survivors were there and a a couple of life rafts. It turned into one life raft. And the the three of them spent, you ready for this? 47 days, 47 days drifting in the Pacific Ocean. 
Two of them survived, one didn't. I mean, the stories, the stories of how they caught fish and how they caught a bird and, and, and the stories of, of, of how they survived with nothing and how they captured water. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And you keep on saying, really? Really? I mean, it's just, really? This life is going down this crazy, well, whew, after 47 days, they're finally found by the Japanese. Now, you know, World War II, that's not the kind of people you want to be found. They were called enemies at the time. And so Louis Zamperini, this one who had uh, titles like an Olympian, a world-class athlete, uh, a bombardier, he got a new title in his life, POW. POW at the hands of the Japanese. And the Japanese didn't take too well at the time to those who surrendered. And his life became an amazing, he thought it was bad in the boat, amazing living hell. And story after story of him going from one camp and further and further into uh, uh, Japan. Uh, and just an amazing circumstances. And eventually the B-29s coming and bombing and eventually the end of the war and liberation and eventually coming home and, and trying to realize and live his life with nightmares. Do you live your life with nightmares? I mean, living your life with real nightmares that are defining you and real circumstances that have robbed his life and the real kind of things that, that you can't sleep at night and that, that drive you to alcohol, that drive you to the world, that you just want to mask the pain. I mean, it was an amazing story that, that had such promise, had such hope, that had been robbed of seemingly everything until the story mazes. I'm sorry I'm telling you this much. You've got to read it anyway. I didn't know this was coming. I didn't know it. I didn't know it. I see someone clogging their ears. I'm not listening. <laughs> Until the story mazes to Jesus. And all of a sudden, we understand why Louis Zemperini's story is called Unbroken. Through all of his brokenness. You see, if you read the story, you can't help but see this invisible hand through the story. You can't help but see this invisible hand that's guiding the story. And sometimes you see the invisible hand guiding the story, just allowing a plane to fly that shouldn't fly. And sometimes this invisible hand allows a plane to crash. You wonder why. But this invisible hand that, that guides a raft and, and guides a raft finally into being rescued into enemy hands. I mean, this invisible hand is everywhere in the story of Louis Zamperini. You can't miss it. When you read the book of Ruth, you're going to find the same invisible hand. I mean, we read this morning, and, and, and Cindy did a phenomenal job of reading the story, and we picked up in verse 6, and all we have are two widows as the main stage of the story. All the men have been gone. But, but through the story, you see this invisible hand again through the story. Did you hear it? Did you see it? Did you hear how it started that, hey, there was a crop back in Bethlehem? That's a invisible hand. The invisible hand that there's a harvest that's coming. An invisible hand that's guiding everything. You see, that invisible hand was the same invisible hand that, that guided Louis Zamperini's story. And that invisible hand is the same invisible hand that guides every story. Listen, that invisible hand is the hand that guides your story. My story. That invisible hand is called God's providence. It's called God's providence, a God who is in control of all things. And we're going to look at a few things today. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at through the sermon, uh, what is God's promise? 
we're going to try to unpack what does it mean of a God who is in control of all things? What does it mean? Was it right for Naomi to say, you've brought this disaster into my life? Is God really in control? Is God really good? How, how do we handle God's providence? And the other thing we're going to see with this, with Ruth and Naomi's story is, are our circumstances going to define us? Or is that invisible hand of God going to name us and define us? What's going to give us our name? What's going to give us our identity? Our lives, our junk, our sin, or that invisible hand and that incredible God? You see, there was a point in Louis Zamperini's life where he almost was as loud as his circumstances to define him. Sometimes that would have been great. World-class athlete, Olympian. Sometimes POW broken, but he was able to rise above them. You know that it was really, listen, it was his circumstances. It was him looking back at his circumstances that really treated him so poorly it was worse than the captors, the haunting that tried to define his life. It's those circumstances that are trying to kill Naomi and kill Ruth and define their lives as well. But Naomi and Ruth, God, God, God does this amazing thing in Ruth chapter one. I mean, he does this amazing thing. He's gonna, he's gonna take our faces and he's gonna set them like flint into the reality that he's a God in control of everything. You might see that it's amazing. But he's also gonna give us two stories of brokenness, two stories of widowhood, two stories of, ba- of barrenness. He's gonna give us two stories. He's gonna say, I want you to look at these two godly women. Which one does your life look like? Because I want to show you how they both respond to a life that is amazingly broken. How one says, yeah, let my circumstances define me. I'm bitter. And one who says, no, no. My God defines me. My God does, not my circumstances. And I'm whole. Amazing, amazing story. It's a story of how God's love can free us. It's a story of how our bitterness can blind us. But let's begin. Let's begin. You want to follow along in your, in your bulletin. I got three things we're going to talk about. The first one is this. The proper perspective of providence. That guiding hand. That guiding hand that guides all of our stories. That guided Louis Zamperini's stories, story. That gu- guided Naomi's story. That guides Ruth's story. That guides yours and my story. That hand is called providence. The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, our doctrinal standard, says this about God's providence. I want to sing it to you because that's how I memorized it in seminary. I won't sing it. Let me tell you, it says this. God's works of providence are his most holy wise and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And the song has La, 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 after that. So it kind of get, get, get tied in. But maybe you got lost in the theological verbiage and maybe those words didn't really, really sing to you. But so let me unpack that for you. Here's what it says. It says that God is in control of everything. Here's what it says, that, that God is in control of all his creatures, all of their actions, all of the time. Here's what it says. It's what, what R.C. Sproul might say, that there's, there's not one Adam and this whole universe that, that is outside of God's control. There's not one rogue Adam. Because if that one rogue Adam were outside of God's control, guess what? 
God ain't God. If God ain't in control, if God isn't in control, we don't want to know him. If God is in control, we can't rest in him. If God is in control, we, we, we can't trust him. If God is in control, we're in trouble. But there's a tension in life with that, isn't there? There's a real tension. Let's be honest with another. That God is in control, and, and let me tell you, there's some sewage running through our lives. That God is in control, and there's some garbage in our worlds. That God is in control, and just things aren't always going according to plan. Things aren't ever going according to plan. You see, Naomi is right. Naomi's theology is good. It's not great. But Naomi is right to take her junk, to take her garbage, to take her brokenness, to take her widowhood, to take her barrenness, to take her situation. And she's right to go and put it at God's feet. I admire her holy boldness and I admire her theological soundness. Because that gave her the permission not to soft sell her situation. That gave her the ability to go and say, God, you're in this. You're in this. If you're a God who's a God in control of all things. You see, Naomi knew that and had the tension in life. But we do. We live in a fallen world. I mean, sin has entered the world. I mean, sin has entered the world and it's affected everything. That, that, that we live in a place of famine and barrenness and, and brokenness. At the same time, we're in a place that God is in control of all things. You know, Naomi was rightfully called the female Job. She really was rightfully called the female Job. She, she lost her husband. She lost her sons. She lost her identity. I mean, she, she lost But we can look to Job and we can understand a lot of things uh, from that book about God. That God is going to allow, for some reason, some pretty nasty things through this broken world into our lives. But we've got to look to Job's friends because Job's friends got to speak to us here for just a moment. So, so just join in with me the Job story for a minute. Let's just quickly jump over there and let's pick up the Job stories because Job's life completely bottoms out. Remember the story, he lost everything, his sons, he's, he's lost his possessions. I mean, it's all gone. I mean, somehow God has allowed this absolute unbelievable, I mean, tsunami of, of a crappy life to absolutely take control of his life. And so Job's friends show up, and, and uh, by the way, they're called miserable friends. And Job's friends show up, and they start off really good. They start off hanging out with Job, and they sit with Job. And for about a week, they do nothing but weep with Job. And they're just saying, man, Job, we're with you. We're hurting for you. But then Job's friends do something really, really stupid. And you know what? we got to go there because Christians often do the same stupid things. They started trying to interpret Job's life and his junk. They were looking at Job's garbage in his life. They're looking at his brokenness and they were saying, now Job, let me tell you why God has brought this into your life. You see, they knew theologically that God was in control. They were right. But where they jumped completely off the beam is they thought they could interpret God. They said, Job, if you gave a little bit more of the poor, this wouldn't have happened to you. Job, if you loved your wife a little bit better, this wouldn't have happened to you. Job, if you were a little bit more of a righteous man, this wouldn't have happened to you. Job, if you just cleaned up your act, uh, certainly a good and loving God wouldn't have done this to you, Job. Good friends, huh? I tell you what, if your life is in trouble and someone wants to look you in the eye and say, well, if you clean up your act, don't listen to them. Come talk to me, we'll weep together, okay? 
Job's friends somehow forgot this amazing mystery. And I'll tell you, it's an amazing mystery that, that God is in control of all things. But you know what Isaiah 55 says? God's ways, listen, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God is above them all. And there's a mysterious will of God that, that allows sewage that we've caused. We started it all. It all became a part of the fall. It's not, he's not culpable of that. We can't hold him responsible for that. But the reality is, is that things come pouring into our life in a fallen world. And we do not have the ability to say, this is why and that's why. We don't have it. But we nor, nor do we have the ability to say, God is not in it. Let me give you another example. If you're reading through the Bible, those of you who love Jesus got up this morning, you're on your Bible program. It's the 15th. Good for you. Keep going. We got a long way to go. But for me, I really love Jesus. I got up and read my Bible a day. And you know that if I didn't, I wouldn't tell you that, right? (laughs) Joseph was introduced in the Bible story to my reading today. Amazing story of Joseph. Joseph was a uh, uh, one of 12 kids and he was his father's favorite. Don't have favorites as kids, by the way. He got the best stuff, the most love and his brothers hated him for it. So his brothers, uh, he goes out looking for his brothers. His brothers see him. He said, and his brothers say, let's kill him. And this guy's a jerk. I mean, he's got some crazy prayers. What the heck is this guy about? Let's just kill him. And there's a story stop. says, no, I love this. We can't kill him. He is our flesh and blood. Let's sell him. Yeah, let's sell him. That's a good idea. I mean, we, we can't flesh and blood. We're not killing him. We're just going to sell him. We're just going to send him off to Egypt. So they sell him, and listen, in the midst of their evilness, in the midst of their their depravity, in the midst of their jealousy, in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their wanting to be identified with their father differently than they were because Joseph was the chosen one, in the midst of all that junk, they sinned, and they were wrong, and they grieved God because they took Joseph and they sold him like a piece of garbage or a commodity to those passing to Egypt. But here's what it says. You invented it for evil. I used it for good. I used it for good. I'm, I'm going to save my people through this Joseph. That's, that's it, my brothers and sisters. God is in control of all things. And, and we are responsible for our sinfulness. And, and, and God is not. But somehow in the mysterious will of God, all things do work together for those who love the Lord to call according to his purpose. You know what our temptation is when the garbage of life comes flowing in? You know what our temptation is when things go bad? It's one of two things. God is not in control. Okay, God is not in control. I mean, God, there's no way he's in control if you brought this. Listen, he's in control of everything. He's God. There's not, there's not one nanosecond, not one, that your God is not in control. You can't let him off the hook, folks. If he's God, he's God. He's in control. The second thing is this, that God cannot be good. He just can't be good. I, I just, I just... I just can't do it. And and I know there's many of us, myself included, who have looked at our circumstances in our life and and the sewage that's been able to be poured into there. And we're we're wrestling with the God who's in control. And and we're wrestling what we understand is good. And and our mind's freaking out because we're saying, how can he be in control? And how how can he be good? Did you you see those things that people wrote? Those those were real. Those were tough. Those Those were tough. But God, let me tell you, God is good. He'll redefine what our goodness is. He is good. And he'll always rescue in his timing. So we got the option. Listen, if, if you hear and you, you hear and you're thinking, well, God is not in control or, or that God is not good, here's your option. Bitterness. 
That's what's, that's what's left for you. But God is not in control. You'll be ticked about that. A God who's not good. <laughs> Bitterness. That's Naomi. Let's go to the next one. Naomi's blinding bitterness. Good theology, not great theology. Good theology, God is in control. But listen, listen, listen. Naomi, and by the way, I know I said Naomi last week, and I'm probably saying it wrong this week, and I'm really sorry. I got that from my mom. She was in the early service. I couldn't say that, but I'm gonna announce a lot of names wrong, all right? So if I offended you last week by saying Naomi, Naomi, get over it. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll try to get it better, but... Get to the point. Come on. Naomi let her circumstances name her and define her. Did you see that? Naomi, unbelievable. Good theology, not great theology. Naomi let her circumstances name her and define her. Her awful circumstances, and humanly speaking, I understand they were absolutely awful. And don't you think for a nanosecond I'm here beating on Naomi. She's an amazing woman, and she's going to come out amazingly well in this, okay? I mean, she's, she's our sister. She's a child of God. And I, I'm not here to rail on her, but God has given us her life to show us an example of, of letting your circumstances name you and define you. And Naomi did. And again, I want you to know, i got to say it one more time. I get it. I get it. Because if, if I lost my spouse and I lost my kids, I think that bitter and a f- couple other choice words would be my name too. But the reality is, 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 is she has gotten there and she has, has let her, her circumstances define her. And oh, how they were horrific. But, but one thing that happened to Naomi is her blindness. She stopped seeing God's blessing all around her. All she saw was the horrificness of her circumstances. They were horrific. But God's providence is shining smiling through that frown, what Cooper would say. Listen, did you see how it started? There's a crop back in Bethlehem, in Judah. God's showing up. What's going to happen? There's going to be a harvest. Unbelievably, Naomi, there's going to be a husband. There's going to be a child. I'm back on the scene. I've never left this scene, Naomi. Naomi's going to come back and say, listen, my my life is empty. I have nothing. God sent me away full, and, and I came back empty. Naomi needed to have this song in her iPod playing as she was going back to uh, Bethlehem. She didn't have it. She needed to have Billy Joel's song. Ready for this? The good old times, the good old days weren't always good, and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. Why? Because Naomi's going to say this craziness. This is her blindness. Hey, I left here full. I left Bethlehem full. Who leaves Bethlehem full for Moab? Who leaves the house of bread and God's promised land to go to some God-forbidden place called Moab? We talked about that last week. No one does. Naomi forgot the good old days weren't always good. You were so bad that you became a foreigner in Moab. It was so bad. You let your sons marry Moabites. You weren't always full. And then she's going to say, and I'm empty. Really, Naomi? You're empty? You're empty, Naomi? You're coming back with nothing, and you just have a woman standing on your right side? Don't listen, Ruth. You're not a nothing. Don't listen, Ruth. You're an amazing woman. Don't listen, Ruth. You're going to let Naomi say, I have nothing, and you have a woman who's standing beside you, who has denounced her future, who has denounced any hope she had for a husband, who's pouring her life out for you, who's going to give you everything she has. You have nothing? Really, Naomi? Naomi, you're going to look into the face of your God that you know is in control of all things and say, you're empty? Really, Naomi? All those covenant promises, all that delivering out of slavery, that I'm going to be with you, really, Naomi, you've swung and missed. You're not empty. 
Do we get it? Jesus plus nothing is everything. Listen, no matter what life gauge has, if you're a child of God, you're not empty. But her bitterness had blinded her. How is it with you? Are you letting your circumstances define you? Are you letting your garbage name you? Are you looking in the mirror and and listening to the flesh and your surroundings tell you who you are? Naomi did. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. (laughs) As amazing as her story is, as Ruth is, Ruth is almost way more amazing. It's Ruth's freeing love. Ruth, I, I don't know where she gets it. It's only God. I don't know how she does it. I mean, it's only the Holy Spirit. But Ruth let God's love name her and define her. Ruth let God, the God and his people, be her identity, her joy, and her hope. Inexplicably, I don't get it. Ruth didn't let her circumstances define her. Unbelievably, who chooses the God of Naomi? Who chooses that? Something divine was going on, wasn't it? I'm telling you, something divine was going on with Ruth. She got a hold of some God love that wouldn't let her go. She got a hold of a God that would name her and love her in the midst of the storm. I'm telling you, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth found in God, and this is a woman with a few strikes against her, this is a woman who's, who's a widow. This is a woman who's barren. This is a woman who's a Moabite. This is a woman whose mother-in-law is bitter. How do you rise above those circumstances? Naomi had blinding bondage to her circumstances, but Ruth found a liberating love of God. A liberating love of God. Let me tell you a little bit about that liberating love of God. I mean, it, it just defies logic. I mean, this, this love of God that she was able to drink in and experience. She says, now, now I'm going to be able to give and serve. I want to give my life in service to a God who's loved me. I, I want to live my life to the God who's named me. I want to live my life for God's people around me. I'm going to sacrifice my love. Let me ask you a question. Does God's love define you? Does God's name define you or do your circumstances? And here's how you're going to tell. I mean, look at Ruth. Ruth was able to love and serve in the midst of incredible junk, unbelievable junk. How? Just just how? She learned a secret. Ruth learned a secret that was an amazing secret. This, this, This God who loved her, he named her. He named her. This God who loved her, he, he named her and the name that she heard from the God that she confessed her faith in is a name, it's an awkward name, it's a weird name, it's, it's Hepzibah. It's Hepzibah, it's what, it's what the prophet Isaiah will say, it's a personal name, you are my delight, Ruth, you're my delight, you're my daughter, I love you, and I, I'll provide for you. No, the world's not going to name you, you are not Mara, you are Hepzibah, you are my delight. Do you hear his name? Do you hear his name over you? If you are in Christ Jesus, if by God's grace you have a relationship with Jesus as your Savior, you 
Your name is beloved. Your name is Hepzibah. Your name is my delight to God. How can that be? That Jesus would come, God in the flesh. He'd enter into our bitterness. He'd enter into our brokenness. He would bear our name. So that through his wounds and through his righteousness, the God of heaven and earth, the holy God of the universe can say, my delight in you, in Christ Jesus. The world wants to tell you your name by your circumstances. Good Olympian, world athlete. It wants to tell you your name by your circumstances. Bitter, broken, widowed, divorcee, single, barren, Your God in Christ Jesus wants to remind you your name. I delight in you, Hepzibah. Do you get it? Hepzibah, Hepzibah. Say it, Hepzibah. My delight is in Christ. How is it with you? What are you letting define you? What are you letting name you? You're You're not letting your position, are you? You're not letting your money. You're not letting your spouse... You're not letting your kids define you, are you? Oh, is that a temptation in our culture? You're not letting any of your status. You're not letting your sin define you, are you? You know, Satan, that's why he wants to use. He wants to beat the stew out of you with your sinfulness and your brokenness. He doesn't want you to hear Hepzibah. He wants you to hear loser, broken, a mess. We're talking about a series from brokenness to life. And really what I want you to hear in closing this morning is God wants to pour upon you right now in the midst of your brokenness, life. I don't know when he's going to fix it all. I do know when. It's when he comes back. And I know there's a time coming, as Tolkien and Keller loves to say, when all sad things come untrue. That's not necessarily today. But my brothers and sisters, what God wants us to know is what Ruth knew, an amazing secret, that in the midst of circumstances that stink, in the midst of brokenness, we can find life in our God, in his love, in his his son. It washes over us. Hepzibah, 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 Hepzibah. My delight is in you, in Christ Jesus. Louis Zamperini almost let the world define who he was, almost let circumstances define who he was. And he found Jesus. And truly, he found one who was unbroken to become broken so that through his brokenness, we can find life. Hepzibah, 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 now. In Christ, my delight. Let us pray. God, we don't want to just throw Naomi under the bus. I mean, golly, she lost her husband. She lost her sons. And she came really close to losing her faith. And God, I thank you. I thank you at the end of the day, God. I I just feel your spirit just reminding me. I thank you at the end of the day that it's not even our love for you or our grip on you that's going to save the day. 
It's your grip on us. It's your love for us. God, forgive us because we live our lives letting our circumstances define us and name us, both good and bad. God, give us a love like Ruth had for you. It was a divine love where she said, you will be my identity. You will be my namer. Your people will be my people. And God, you freed her. You just freed her to live and to love and to serve. You gave her life in brokenness. You gave her the love of Jesus. God, give it to all of us because we, we live in a fallen world. Thank you that we don't have to pretend you're not in control. Thank you that we don't have to try to clean you up or clean up our junk. But we just have to hear Hepzibah, Hepzibah. My delight is in you. Because of that, we can live. Thank you, Christ Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.